0: Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that on this Christmas morning we can understand some of the truths that your word leaves us. You haven't left us in the dark. You haven't left us without knowledge of these things. And We delight to know that you have spoken in the past through the prophets and now you have spoken to us through your Son, And the record of his life through the Gospel writers give us understanding, we pray, of the text we come to, that we might all rejoice even more in the wonder of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on this Christmas morning, as you know, we're continuing in our series which has the title, The Coming of the Messiah, as told to. And during this month of December, we've been examining quite a few important texts in the unfolding story of that coming Messiah. We began in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, when the snake, the devil himself, with Adam and Eve in the background, was the first to receive the news that the Messiah would come. Then we jumped to Isaiah chapter seven, seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus, and there we saw how King Ahaz of Judah received the news of the coming Messiah that he would be born of a virgin. Then yesterday we jumped into Luke chapter one, and we met that version virgin mary i 'm sure you 've heard of her, and saw how to saw how to her was announced not only a sudden pregnancy but that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And now this morning we turn to the next person in line and to a man named Joseph and I'm pretty sure you've heard of him too. Now it's pretty common in sermon series that lead up to Christmas that preachers turn to the gospel stories about the foremost characters in the story, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the shepherds and the wise men, and the angels, and of course Mary. And as we do that, poor old Joseph just gets a little bit left behind, don't you think? Ever wondered about that? It's fairly obvious why Mary gets the spotlight, I'll grant her that, maybe even Gabriel the angel, but why does Joseph play such a role in the background. And then it dawned on me that if you cast your eye over the whole story, even read it very carefully three times over, you may well spot one possible reason for the relative neglect of the story from Joseph's perspective. Here it is. He doesn't say anything. Even Zechariah, who is struck mute for half a chapter, at least gets to write, his name is John, when the moment comes. But Joseph says nothing. Mary has a few questions to ask. Gabriel has a few messages to deliver. Even the shepherds get a line or two. But absolutely nothing comes from the mouth of Joseph. And yet in this account of the news of the arrival of the Messiah, although he plays this vital role at the beginning of the story, we the readers don't get to hear anything at all in relation to how he felt about the whole thing. So with that, my task becomes a whole lot harder compared to yesterday's message on Mary. But that's how it is often with men, isn't it? You have to dig a bit, you have to prod a bit, To get them to speak and to get a bit of a story. So let's do that and turn to the text in question in which we find in Matthew one, and there will we find we will find the following matters to note about the time the angel appeared to Joseph. The angel, of course, was the bearer of the news of the coming of the Messiah to Joseph and told him about the coming of the Messiah. First, let's see that the angel appeared to him in a crisis, in verses 18 to 20. The angel appeared to him in a crisis." Now you may not have thought of that before, but if you carefully think through the text in its context, you might agree that the moment the angel appeared to Joseph was a crisis moment. Matthew could not have put it any plainer if we tried. When the Messiah's mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with the child of the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now before we think on that, think on this that the words Christmas and crisis often go together. Whether it's the crisis that results when Christmas dinner is burnt to a crisp or still raw because the oven didn't go on time, or whether it's something more serious, the crisis of heartbreak and loss, maybe a death in the family, maybe a fight in the family, maybe not having a family, whatever it is, crisis and Christmas are strange bedfellows found together. Perhaps it's because we're constantly being bartered with the message that Christmas Day is meant to be happy, happy, happy as we see all those families and all those TV ads for coals or whatever doing Christmas dinner with great big smiles on their faces and the sounds of laughter emanating from the table. But reality says something different, doesn't it? Sometimes there's no laughter. Sometimes there aren't even any smiles. Sometimes there isn't even a table. And we can only guess that right up until that angel appeared to him in a dream that Joseph's table and chair and house weren't all that happy. And why is that? Well, he and Mary are betrothed. That is, they're engaged. Engagement in that culture was much, much more serious and much more weighty than ours. In fact, to break off a betrothal required a divorce, as Matthew himself makes plain in verse 19. Betrothal in those days was more like stage one of a two stage wedding. Mary and Joseph are in that first stage except for the fact that is revealed and so discovered how we don't know that Mary is already pregnant. And if she is pregnant, and if Joseph knows he's not the father, then there's only one thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Even if he had to do it with great sadness and call it off, file for divorce. It's a huge step. It's a drastic step. In those days, a shameful step. But it has to be done. That's the crisis he's in as he weighs up just how this can be done in such a way to minimise the shame upon Mary. That's what we know because Matthew tells us that much and nothing more except to say that Joseph is a just man. The word Matthew uses here really means righteous. He's a righteous man. He orders his life by faith in obedience to God and his word. And being a righteous man, he's also got the fruits of compassion. He cares deeply for Mary. He doesn't want to bring undue shame upon her. And so instead of a public legal case, which is an avenue that he could have taken, he resolves that the divorce will be a quiet one. And yet it's clear, isn't it, that erupting into his life at this time is real heartbreak. It's not difficult to imagine the hurt and the shock and the anger at the betrayal And a host of other emotions swirling around in his mind for Joseph and his heart when he first learns the news that Mary is pregnant. He's in crisis before the angel comes with this news. And then when you think about it, we should have expected that. After all, Mary was in crisis too when she got the news, and her crisis was the news itself. And then again think how this applies to just about every character in the story. The wise men have their own crisis to deal with in relation to Herod. The shepherds have a crisis of sorts when they leave their sheep behind and rush to Bethlehem. Herod has his own crisis which we'll see next Sunday. And then later on Mary and Joseph and the child have another crisis when they have to flee to Egypt for safety and refuge. The birth of this baby is not a simple, straightforward story of a child entering the world and everything's rosy. Rather, his birth signals chaos, disruption and change. The baby changes everything. He turns things upside down. And inside out, as many of us have discovered, that was certainly the case for Joseph right up until the angel told him the news and put things into a perspective that Joseph could never have worked out for himself. I wonder if you can relate to Joseph this morning. Maybe you have your own crisis ...that is or isn't related to Christmas. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a finance issue. Maybe it's a family issue. Or an employment issue. Or a marriage issue. It could be anything. It is anything. It could be totally out of the blue... ...as this was for Joseph... ...completely blindsided by what he'd come to know. If you are in a crisis... I can say with honesty that it's unlikely that Gabriel will be arranging to speak to you in tonight's dream. But I can say with assurance that God is in your crisis just as he was in Joseph's. Secondly then, then let's see that the angel, still in verse 20, averted him from his intentions. The angel averted him From his intentions. One of the best ways to have your crisis ended is basically for someone to tell you the situation is all quite normal and that there isn't a crisis at all. You want your doctor to ring up and say there's been some mistake in the way the scan was read and you don't have cancer. You want the policeman to ring up and say that the traffic camera has been found to be faulty and you can forget about your speeding fine. You want the judge to overrule the jury who finds you guilty by saying there's been a, a miscarriage of justice. You want the angel that appears to you in your dream to say, go back to sleep. It's not as bad as you think. God's in this. It's all of him. You've got nothing to worry about. And That's pretty much what happened, isn't it? Though he was in crisis mode, the angel's words to him were designed to clarify, to calm, to comfort and to clear away the confusion and end the crisis. And the angel does that for Joseph by telling him things about Mary's pregnancy that Joseph could never in a million years have worked out, even if he had an IQ of over 200. 200. He would never have guessed these things, never have known them unless they were revealed to him supernaturally as they were in his dream by God through the intermediary of this angel. And that angel confirmed for him that what he perceived as a crisis was not actually a crisis. The divorce he was thinking of was not necessary. The wedding he was thinking of calling off, put it back on the calendar just a little bit later. And the girl he betrothed to, Well, she hadn't cheated on him at all. In fact, Joseph was not even to be afraid. But he was to do as he planned, to go ahead to marry her. Now, I'll be the first to admit that if every one of your crises was resolved like that, then that would be just fine. That would be Christmas. But I admit also that this was a special circumstance and in that special circumstance the angel brought not only the comfort Joseph needed but also the information that was needed in order to help him process and make sense of the whole thing. And then third we see here in verses 21 to 25 how the angel assured him of God's purposes. Here we think about these verses and what the angel had to say now centering around the child whom Mary was now pregnant with and these three things about him his origin his name his purpose Let's think about them in turn first his origins and quite understandably Joseph is feeling betrayed he thinks Mary has been unfaithful he can't see how the marriage can work divorce plans are underway until he is told, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. With this one line, Joseph's distress begins to melt away. Mary has not broken trust. There has been no betrayal. Instead, something terrible, something wonderful has happened. God, the Holy Spirit, has worked in the womb of this virgin... The church traditionally speaks of the virgin birth. It's more accurate, really, to speak of the virginal conception of Jesus. And because of this mysterious work of the Spirit, Joseph need not hesitate to bring Mary home as his wife. Now, Matthew, the writer of the Gospel, is actually quite concerned that we notice the Holy Spirit in all of this. So he tells us twice over in the passage, first in verse 18 and then in verse 20, that Mary's pregnancy originates in the miraculous and mysterious work of the Spirit. It's actually an emphasis you'll find sustained throughout the biblical accounts of the life of Christ. At every point through his life, again and again we are told that the Holy Spirit penetrates and suffuses the person and the work of this child, this man, at every turn, at every juncture, in temptation, in miracles, in his speaking, in everything he does. And it is still by the work of the same Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, that you can know this Messiah for yourself, his origins. And then secondly, his name. The child that Mary is carrying is not going to be without identity In fact, he would be granted a name before his birth, as so often Old Testament characters were. The name that they were to be given, which you will notice as being Joseph's task, by the way, would indicate the kind of person they would be and the work they would complete. And in this case, the name was chosen for the baby Jesus. The English spelling of the Hebrew, Yeshua, is Joshua. When translated from Hebrew into the New Testament Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the name Yeshua becomes Yesus. In English, Yesus becomes Jesus. So Yeshua and Joshua and Jesus all mean the same thing. Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. Now the name Jesus was quite popular in the first century but despite its commonness it's also a name that's remarkably significant revealing something of his divinity and his ministry. At the same time the commonness of the name underscores his humanity and his humility And so in every way this child who is to be given this name in every way lived and lives up to this name. It's a name that reminds us of the power, the presence and the purpose of the living God. It's the name that assures us that God's gracious intention is to save us. And save us he did and he does by virtue of his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead. And then, of course, his purpose, which we've touched on in part already. Because he was given the name Jesus, he saves or God saves, because that is what he would do. The angel's words were, for he will save his people from their sins. We thought on Paul's words yesterday, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, We could think on John's words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. While these are things that we in the church speak of from week to week and we thank God for them, how easy it is for us to lose sight of them at Christmas. They should be in the forefront of our minds This baby came into the world for this purpose, not to entertain or amuse us, not to judge or condemn us, but to save us from the consequences of our sins, to save us from the wrath of God, actually to save us in fact from God, sent by God to save us from God, that we might be his people both now and forever. Well, that in a nutshell is the story from Joseph's perspective. An angel who appeared in his crisis moment with news that truly rescued him from doing what he didn't need to do. But Joseph isn't the only one needing rescue, is he? You see, we all need it. I certainly do. And you may not know it, but you also. Our problem isn't that we have a crisis or are confused, or need further education, or better standards. We might have a need for any or all of those things, but none of them is our essential problem. Our problem is who we are in the sight of God. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the good news of Christmas is that God has sent Jesus to be our rescuer from that fundamental problem. That is what Christmas is about. You see, the Messiah promised to Jesus and also to Mary grew up to live the life we ought to have lived, but we didn't. A life of perfect obedience and submission to God. And he not only did that, but he also grew up and to die the death we ought to have died because of our sin, the death we deserve so that he died bearing our guilt upon his shoulders. And by coming to him, to this Messiah, and putting our hope and trust and faith in him, what happens? Well, the best Christmas gift ever happens. The great exchange. Our sin on him. His righteousness on us. We are treated as innocent, even though we are guilty, because he was treated as guilty even though he was innocent. And so may this story come to you in your crisis and bring to you that comfort that can only be found in knowing that he did this for you, yes you, that you might be saved. Let's pray together. We give you thanks, our gracious God, that in Joseph's moment of need you came to him and you confirmed that which he could not have known unless you revealed it to him. And we rejoice that you have done that for us. You've revealed in your word what we would never have known had you not told us but you have told us these things, made them plain and clear in the scriptures that we might put our faith and hope in this one who was born for us, that we might always be safe and secure with him and find in him everything we need for our salvation. We've sung about these things, we've prayed about them we've thanked you for them we've heard them again afresh may they be real and living to us in our celebrations today the one that you sent to save us from our sins how we thank you for him we would come to him with our all our hearts like Mary and say yes lord do as you will Have control. We submit ourselves with thankfulness and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.